Hey, I'm Morgan from Seattle. I'm Matt from Essex, Ontario. Hey, I'm Dan from Dayton, Mass. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. Rick Moranis' first job was selling programs at hockey games for 75 cents a pop. I would do anything that I could to try and coax that 25-cent tip out of the 75 cents, you know, to, to be able to se- get somebody to say, keep the change, which is really hard in Canada to get somebody to say, keep the change. <laughs> so I started doing shtick, you know. I started doing souvenir hot dogs, get your souvenir hot dogs, <laughs> ice-cold programs, hot Coca-Cola. Who wants a hot Coca-Cola? You know, stuff like that. It wasn't working. I didn't make any money. But we did get to uh, stay for the games if there were empty seats. It's a bullseye. Coming up, Rick Moranis was a movie star. Strange Brew, Ghostbusters, Spaceballs, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And then he quit. We'll talk about why he doesn't regret leaving show business to raise his children. I applied all my creativity to my home life, to my kids, to my family. And we'll find out why he's returning to the public eye with an album of Jewish songs called My Mother's Brisket and Other Love Songs. I had to go to Hebrew school for a couple hours, five days a week. I never forgave my mother for that, which is one of the reasons I made this album. was a little bit of revenge. And then my interview with a true soul music icon, Booker T. Jones. Booker T. and his compatriots in the MGs defined the Memphis sound of Stax Records. That label was the home to soul legends like Wilson Pickett, Sam and Dave, and Otis Redding. Booker's still not ready to hang it up, even after half a century in the music business. Music is so vast, you know, and I, I feel like I've just scratched the surface in a lot of areas. You know, I, just, I just think there's a lot of possibilities for me now. Plus, book critic Carolyn Kellogg offers up a couple of great new books you should read this summer. We hear a little bit of Doug Benson's new comedy album, and I talk about Chance the Rapper's free mixtape acid rap. That's all this week on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Rick Moranis made a career out of playing the put-upon. Nerds, dope, sleazoids, schlemiels, schlemazels, and Canadians. He brought the Argyle Sox community to life on screen in movies like Ghostbusters, Strange Brew, and Spaceballs. Then in the mid-90s, he quit. Since 1994's The Flintstones, he's barely worked at all, and since the last of the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids movies in 1997, he hasn't appeared on screen. It turns out he was busy raising his two children, and since they've gotten grown, he's recorded two albums. The first, The Agoraphobic Cowboy, was nominated for a Grammy. The new one, a group of lively comic songs with a Jewish theme, is called My Mother's Brisket. Here's a bit of the title track. The smell first hits me from five blocks away. It's Friday and I can't stay away The Blue Jays are playing but I won't likely risk it I'm here with a plan to binge on her brisket My mother's brisket So moist and tender Always sends me On another Shabbos bender Onions and carrots look nice I don't need them and potatoes, no dice There are only two things that suffice My mother and her brisket 
make my mother's brisket so silky smooth. Whatever might happen all week, there's nothing quite Rick Moranis, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. This, is a, this will sound like a, a glib question, but I promise you it isn't. When you cut an entire record of uh, Jewish theme songs um, full of, uh, you know, full of Yiddish words, uh, often in choruses, do you find your voice tends to go go into a naturally into a sort of Yiddish uncle manner of speech? I don't know if the words put me in the voice or whether the voice put me into the words, but. Um, I do. I am playing a character when I'm singing these songs. Um, variations on a character, I should say. It's it's not me any more than the agoraphobic cowboy guy was me. I'm releasing these under my name, but they're very much written from a point of view and sung from a point of view. Who who is the guy that you're playing? Uh, I don't know. I've never met him. I just he just comes through sometimes. Did you uh, did you grow up in a big family, a, a small family? Did you have extended family around all the time? Yeah, I I have uh, one sister, so the nuclear family was small, but I had a large peripheral family, and um, everyone was kind of close enough that we spent a lot of time together. But I also grew up on a street with uh, tons of kids. Did you feel very Jewish as a kid? Was that an important part of your identity? I was I didn't know what it was uh particularly. I mean, I was I grew up in a Jewish suburb of Toronto, so um I didn't know that there was any other except that in a class in a public school class of 32 kids, there were only two kids who weren't Jewish who had to come to school on the holidays on the Jewish holidays, which I thought was really <laughs> really unfair to those kids. Um but I did feel very Jewish when I had to go to a lot of Hebrew school after school. I went to regular school from 9 until 3.30 or 4, and then I had to go to Hebrew school for a couple hours, um, five days days a week. I never forgave my mother for that, which is one of the reasons I made this album, was a little bit of revenge. And and I also went to a, a good amount of synagogue when I was a kid. So in those environments, I felt very Jewish. And it, and it was only much later that I realized how culturally Jewish we were being raised and um, how much of it would influence me. How did you, how did you realize that? What, what was the first situation you got in that was, you know, outside of that world? I guess, you know, the very first job I had was selling programs at the hockey games at Maple Leaf Gardens when I was 12 or 13. And I think the buddy that got us the job and a couple of us that went down there to get the job, we were the only Jews in the place. So maybe that's where the w- – w- that that was the first place that I felt very uh, Jewish. That sounds like the greatest job a 13-year-old could ever have. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Um, the The problem was is that I was so low on the uh, in the hierarchy – that I had to sell in the top seats, which were called the grays. And the book was 75 cents. I was really little. I could only carry 25 of them. And I had to climb a thousand stairs to get up to the grays. And, you know, you look at the ticket price and the number of people that had tried to sell these people programs on their way up to the grays. And I wasn't selling a lot of programs. So um, the odds were that if you did sell one it would somebody would give you a dollar and i would do 
anything that I could to try and coax that 25 cent tip out of the 75 cents, you know, to, to be able to get somebody to say, keep the change, which is really hard in Canada to get somebody to say, keep the change. <laughs> so I started doing shtick. You know, I started doing souvenir hot dogs, get your souvenir hot dogs, <laughs> ice cold programs, hot Coca-Cola. Who wants a hot Coca-Cola? You know, stuff like that. It wasn't working. I didn't make any money. But we did get to uh, stay for the games if there were empty seats. And that was still in the era of the original six teams in the NHL. And I got to see Bobby Orr all the time. And then I was there the night that the Minnesota North Stars skated on the ice at Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens in 19, I think it was 67, in their, God, fluorescent green shorts. And that was the beginning of the end of hockey as we knew it. Well, was that the beginning of your show business career? Did you did you like have any relatives or know anyone who worked in entertainment? No, entertainment was something that to me was done in the states. I, I had no idea that it was something that you could even think about doing for a living growing up in Canada. And I don't know why that is. I think it might have had to do with the fact that when you watched television in Toronto in those days. The very clear picture on the CBC or CTV was hockey or ballet or documentaries on hedgehogs or whatever it was. And the very fuzzy, fuzzy picture was Lucy and Dick Van Dyke and Phil Silvers and all this hilarious, great stuff. And so it just seemed very remote. And I guess the first indicator that there was life outside of that was really the British invasion, you know, the the idea that's that people from a group from England could be on the radio, not just American groups. And and that sort of changed the calculus a little bit. But no, it wasn't until much, much later that I had any inkling that I could actually leave Canada and and, um, try and be in show business. Did you have any secret Canadian entertainment or, or comedy heroes that I would know nothing about because I'm American? Well, you might not know about Hart Pomerantz. Hart Pomerantz was, uh, you know who Lorne Michaels is. And before Lorne Michaels came to the States and uh, created Saturday Night Live, he was a writer for a while in uh, in Los Angeles on various shows, I'm pretty sure. But before that, he was part of a comedy team. And he was primarily the straight man. And the funny guy was Hart Pomerantz. And Hart was the, the first guy... A little bit older than my generation, but he was the first guy that I really recognized as being a local guy who was very funny. Um, and then there were, you know, some of the DJs were 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 funny. And um, beyond that, you know, there there weren't too many people that I related to. You actually started your entertainment career as a as a radio guy, didn't you? Yeah, I got a job at a radio station when I was still in high school spinning records for the DJs. They called us operators, so they didn't have to pay us a lot. And um, the first radio station I worked at was a middle-of-the-road station um, playing, you know, the the Andy Williams and the Ed Ames and Montavani and Percy Faith. And that was on AM. FM was uh, was also – the overnight show was classical and the rest of the day was – heavy MOR, you know, shows like Candlelight and Wine in the evening and (laughs) Carousel in the afternoon. And those were voice tracks that we operated and we inserted the music and logged in the commercials and stuff. And then um, the radio station I was working at changed format and became a rock station and all the staff changed and it got very, very exciting. 
And that's when some American personalities came in and started to be the DJs. And I was on the board spinning the records. And I would kind of tell them what to say just because I would think of things. And I didn't know that that was called writing. But um, one thing led to another. And the program director suggested that I go on the air. So he gave me the all-night show. At the at the age of nineteen, and I was pretty freaked out about it for a long time. I mean, give I, me tell me what you wrote for these DJs. Like, what were oh, you just, writing them bits? No, well, it was at that time it was very much non personality radio. It was all about how much music you could fit into the hour. One station would say, "With up to fifty two minutes of music this hour," with up to sixty eight minutes of music this hour, they would just do anything they could <laughs> to beat the other station. So um, that's a metric hour. Yeah. Because of that, um, you really just went from one song to the next. And there was only the intro time before the vocal came in on the on the song where the DJ could talk. But I would sort of just look at the title and figure something that was in the news or come up with a turn of phrase or something and just suggest it. And, you know, sometimes they would take it and sometimes they didn't. The first time I went on microphone, I was reading a public service announcement on my college radio station, and I messed it up. And then I said a word you're not allowed to say on the radio, but I was on the radio live. And it's indelibly imprinted upon my brain. Do you remember the first time you went on mic live? Um, I, th- I do and I don't because I, I, I think I can... I think I deliberately blocked it out because it was so bad. <laughs> but I didn't have that traumatic type of experience that you did. I had a terrible, you know, they call them faults when you screw up on live radio and we had to keep a fault book. And there was this huge, huge crisis, serious news thing that happened. And the newsman came in and gave me two sound carts. That's in the days of tape. And... um and I didn't have a toggle flipped. And the news came on. There were two reports. The news came on and said, and now we go live to Ottawa for this report. Dead air. And then, uh, uh, and now we go, we go live to Montreal for this report. Dead air. And they said, the weather in a moment. Dead air. Because I didn't have the toggle. And, he, and then, he, then he gave the weather 30 seconds later. And I, I mean, it was bad. I thought I was going to be fired. I wasn't. But I had to write a novel into the fault book explaining what had happened. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Rick Moranis. His first notable job was on the Canadian sketch comedy show SCTV. He went on to land big roles in movies like Spaceballs and, of course, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Rick Moranis' new album is called My Mother's Brisket and Other Love Songs. Most of the folks um, on, in the cast of SCTV had come out of the Second City, and you didn't. Uh, how did you end up on TV with them? Uh, they were entering their third season, and um, the show was, I think, faltering a little bit, and people were kind of mutinying and um, moving on with with things. And John Candy left to do his own series on another network, and Eugene Levy and Andrea Martin decided to go part-time. They were coming to Los Angeles to see if they could get things going, and they were going to do a few shows. And Catherine O'Hara left, and um, and Harold Ramis uh, started doing movies. So he was gone. And they were you know, recruiting, trying to fill some gaps from within the theater company. And um, Dave, I ran into Dave Thomas. I met him. He saw something that I did, and he invited me to do the show. And that's how I wound up uh, on that third season. 
I want to play a clip that I just ran into this morning on YouTube. This is from 1980, which is the year that you started on SCTV, but it's not from SCTV. It's from a CBC pilot. Um, And one of the things that I really liked about it was that you are playing a character that is um, basically the exact opposite of the uh, kind of nerds and schmoes that uh, you became famous for playing. Um, You're a movie producer, a Canadian movie producer, a young one who has, just to describe the visual of this, just an astonishing volume of cocaine on his face. It's actually toothpaste. Oh, (laughs) excuse me. Sorry. Sorry to disappoint you. It's toothpaste. (laughs) Well, it appears to be, it is what appears to be cocaine. Oh, okay. Um, Well, either way, it works on radio because, you know. <laughs> you, you can call it what you want to call it. <laughs> Let's take a listen. Good morning. Hi, how are you? Very nice to meet you. What time is it? It's, it's 10 a.m. and it's time for our interview. You you came on time. It's the first yeah. time television's been on time. Let me put my You're right, it's 10 o'clock. This is an original car shake. That's fabulous. I paid 350 for this. They're worth 1500 Look at all these people in my house. I don't believe it. Stephen, can I have an Irish coffee to go? To stay, to go. Do you want one, dear? No, we'll thanks, have one. We'll have one. Listen, you'll bleep this out. I have a tendency to use some words. Don't, you know what don't I'm worry, we can clean it up. In okay, the Stephen, I need a cigarette. He's a very cooperative young man. We're writing a very, very big film together. Okay, okay, thank you, dear. The CRTC, mm-hmm. the CFTC, the CCCC, all of them, they don't know how to produce films. Get it out of the public sector. Get it into the private sector. They know how to... Thank you. And that's they know what how to, trying to do. They know how to build highways, but they can't make movies. They know from uh, from the group of seven, but do they know from the Magnificent Seven? I got a cat in the hospital. Mm-hmm. It's costing me $60 a day. I could put him in the Hyatt for 50 <laughs> I know you were doing stand-up. Were you, were you doing characters in your stand-up? I did stand-up very briefly. It wasn't something I really enjoyed. And uh, I used my guitar, and I did a lot of non-sequiturs, a lot of unrelated little bits. And it was it was several months into it that somebody said to me, hey, you know, you're a lot like – have you ever seen Steve Martin? He, you're a lot like him. Well, he was much better than I was, needless to say. But there was a similarity in the fact that he had his banjo. He was working with his banjo and doing sort of disjointed bits about different things and launching into music and then stopping and doing a line and not developing um, anecdotes, monologues, stories, whatever kind of thing, and not doing observational stuff like many people were doing at that time. I wasn't doing that. I was doing similar kinds of stuff to him. Occasionally, I would flip into a character if I went down a path like that, but um, not often. I didn't get, I didn't really get into character work until I started doing uh, radio series at the CBC and um, that pilot and some sketches I did. That Those were all done with uh, that pilot and the radio series were done with Ken Finkelman. He was doing a style of video editing in that scene and in that pilot. That was 1980 that became popular many, many years later, that kind of jump cutting. He just thought, why not? You know, nobody was doing that at the time. I certainly hadn't seen anybody do it. And he, he also anticipated um, the, the sort of... Uh the comedy of discomfort and faux documentary style in in his really great Canadian show, The Newsroom. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, and uh, some of the some of the seeds of that 
um, I got to see in the work that that uh, we were doing together um, as far back as the the mid seventies on uh, radio series at the CBC too. I read somewhere that you, while you were while you were still a stand up, flew out to Los Angeles uh, to try and break into the L.A. stand up scene, and in fact auditioned for Mitzi Shore. Is that the case? Yeah, I went to, uh, I had no idea what was involved, and I didn't have immigration, I didn't have representation, I had nothing except an act and a guitar. And I just thought you could go to the comedy store on a Monday night and she'd see you. So I went to the comedy store, and these two guys um, were running the amateur night, and they just told me, oh, we're booked up for weeks, come back in you know three months. And I was like, What? No, no, you don't understand. I, I, I do this. I have a knack. They wanted no part of me. So I just waited, and I saw this little E-type Jaguar convertible with a blonde pull into the parking lot, and I followed it into the parking lot. And I said, are you Mitzi? And she looked at me, and first I guess she thought that there was a machine gun in the, uh, in the guitar case, and then she looked <laughs> at me and figured, oh, he's harmless. And she said, yes. <laughs> and I said, Listen, I'm from Toronto. I actually have an act, and I do this up there. And do you think you could look at me? Because I can't stick around for as long as these guys want me to. And she said, well, I'll look at you tonight. Tell them to put you on. And I went back in, and I said, Mitzi says that I'm on at whatever time. And these guys didn't know whether to kill me or or whether to suck up to me at that point. But anyway, I went on and um, and I had an act. So I, you know, I made the audience laugh and she started using me. How about that for a word in um, on the strip and at the at uh, the club in Westwood. And I I lasted for a couple of weeks. I made the mistake of asking her for bus fare one night because I was playing in Westwood and then she wanted me to host on the strip. And I called her up and I said, listen, I don't have a car. Uh, Can you give me cab fare or bus fare? She said, we don't pay. And that was it. I went to the airport and went home and fortunately didn't stop working. (laughs) Um, You did a lot of stuff on the show with Dave Thomas and probably the most famous, maybe even the most famous sketches from the show's entire run uh, were your roles as Bob and Doug McKenzie. So I, I want to play a clip from one of the Bob and Doug sketches. Um, and if folks don't remember, Bob and Doug were um, basically a, a compilation of every stereotype about rural Canadians that existed um, in, in, in the form of two guys in lumberjack, te- in lumberjack shirts. Okay, good day. Welcome to the Great White North. Go. Go again. Beautiful. Okay, good day. Welcome to the Great White North. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's it going, eh? And whoa, did you hear about... Well, well, you can tell. Okay, you hear about the guy who, like, uh, was opening a beer, eh, and, like, went to drink and then did the stupid thing of looking in the bottle and, whoa, there's a mouse in his bottle, eh? Real, real, real mouse. Well, I guess it, it was dead, right? Drowned from yeah. beer. And drunk, too. Drowned, it, happy, it, died too. it had a smile on its face, eh? It died from down. drunk driving in the bottle. But you know what the guy got? Tell him. A whole case of beer. Right. So our topic today is how to stuff a mouse into a beer bottle without, uh, without breaking it. The its, bottle. Its bones. Right. So that they'll look at it and give you a case and not think you hose them by... Uh, by deliberately stuffing one in, eh? It's like shipbuilding in a bottle, okay? Right. Were Bob and Doug really a response to CanCon, to Canadian content requirements? 
Yeah, very much so. Very, that's exactly how they were created, why they were created. Um, I had been doing a lot of uh, satire before that on Canadian content regulations, which I, I, my knee-jerk reaction to this government mandate was to satirize it. I, I thought the government had no business legislating the arts. And we should we should explain for Americans who are listening that in in Canadian broadcasting, a certain amount of the content, depending on the outlet, has to be uh, of Canadian origin and uh, in some cases has to have Canadian-themed content represent Canada. Right, right. And it, what it is is it's cultural protectionism. And, you know, I mean, there there's protectionism in a lot of different industries, but the industry lobbies the government and the government puts on import quotas and taxes and whatever – but for the government to do it to the arts, it didn't make sense to me. In retrospect, I have no idea whether I was right or wrong or who got the last laugh. I have no idea. Um, but at the time, I was doing a lot of satire of it. And the the third season of the show, which, which was the season that I joined, was, um, was not on independent television. Uh, it was on the CBC. And it was syndicated in the States to uh, independent television, which had uh, six minutes of commercials. So it was, therefore, a 24-minute half hour. And um, the one in in Canada was a 26-minute half hour. And the producers came into the room and they said, with the extra two minutes, the CBC uh, wants you to do something Canadian. And I was appalled by this because it didn't matter what we did. We were Canadian. We were in Canada. Everything that we were doing was therefore Canadian. And I said, that's crazy. What do you want us to do? Is sit in front of a map of Canada, put on toque and, and parkas and snow boots and fry back bacon and drink beer and talk like this, eh? And he said, sure, sure, do that. <laughs> so we did. And, um, you know, I, ironically... Of all the stuff that was done on that show, and there were, there was a lot of really interesting work done on that show that a lot of care was put into, a lot of writing and production and design and performance and editing and and on and on and on, a lot of work. And this thing was a throwaway. It was one camera. There wasn't even a crew. The crew went home, and one guy <laughs> stayed there with one camera on us, and we improvised the thing, and that was the thing that came out of the show. You know, I, I, I felt bad about it. It, it, uh, it. it wasn't fair to the other cast members and to the other work that we were doing. On the other hand, it was an incredible amount of success that Dave and I had. The movie that uh, that the two of you made, Strange Brew, ended up being the year's highest grossing film in Canada, and <laughs> that's right. And had a fair uh, had a fair fair amount of success um, in the United States as well. Well, Elsinore, twelve. 24. Oh, yeah, sorry. 24 Elsinore beers. 24. Yeah. 24 Elsinore. 1470. I believe there'll be no charge on this two for uh, a beer, thank you. Excuse me? Okay. We found this mouse in a bottle of Elsinore beer that we bought at your beer store, eh? And we heard, like, when that happens that uh, you get your beer free. It's in the Canadian Criminal Code, eh? Yeah. Like, there's legal precedent setting cases in law. So, like, uh, give us our free beer. You want free beer? Go to the brewery. Now get out of here before I put the two of you in a bottle. You know, they, those characters are immensely beloved um, 
you know, not just in Canada, but especially in Canada. Um, do you do you feel weird about them being taken? Uh, you know this this sort of satir this sort of satire of a requirement of being Canadian being taken as in basically exactly the opposite way as a celebration of everything that's special about Canada? Well, that's precisely what I mean about not really understanding after all these years exactly what happened. Here I was satirizing Canadian content, and I become it. And (laughs) that's exactly what the government intended, was for something to emerge out of Canada to really put it on the map. And that's the <laughs> thing that winds up emerging. So it's, it really is bizarre and at the same time sort of perfect. After a break, Rick Moranis talks about why he basically left show business behind and what it might take to get him back on screen. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Bullseye is supported by MailChimp building technology for people and businesses around the world to design and send email newsletters. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp, email marketing for everyone. It's summer now, and come September, you're going to wish you had stretched it out just a little bit longer. So, get planning. Hop on a boat with Mark Marin, Eugene Merman, Cameron Esposito, Dan Deacon, John Roderick, John Darneal of the Mountain Goats, and a ton of other great comedians and musicians. And we've got a new addition to the lineup, Wyatt Cenac. It's the Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival, September 13th through 16th. Set sail from Miami into the Bahamas for music, comedy, and of course, shuffleboard. Tickets available now at boatparty.biz, a real website for a real event. The Atlantic Ocean Comedy and Music Festival is sponsored by Splitsider.com and MailChimp. I'll see you in the high seas. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comic actor Rick Moranis. We're talking about the acting career that he ended up giving up in order to raise his kids. When you became a movie star, uh, which you did in the in the mid 1980s, did you like it? Um, you know, when when it happens to you, you're inside of a bubble, and that becomes your reality. So I was really busy. I was working with great people. I was having a fantastic time. How could I not like it? But when you get outside of the bubble and and try and live any kind of normal life, then you feel the effects of the stardom. Um, But, you know, if you're in your hotel and you're picked up by a car and then you're delivered at the studio and that's your life, you have no interaction. You have no perspective on what it's like. I want to ask you a, a slightly personal question. If anything is too personal, just let me know. Your wife died when your kids were quite young, um, and she was ill before she died. And I wonder what it was like to try and recalibrate your life around a new set of facts. You know, I think show business kind of assumes that show business is the most important thing, and so it can be hard to change your priorities when you're in show business? Well, stuff happens to people every day, and they make adjustments in their lives um, for all kinds of reasons. And um, there was nothing unusual about um, what happened or or what I did. Um, I think the reason that people were intrigued by the decisions I was making 
and sometimes seemed to have almost admiration for it, had less to do with the fact that I was doing what I was doing and more to do with what they thought I was walking away from, as if what I was walking away from had far greater value than anything else that one might. The decision in my case to become a stay-at-home dad, which people do all the time, um, I guess wouldn't have meant as much to people if I had had a very simple kind of make-a-living existence and decided, you know what, I need to spend more time at home. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do this part-time and then work out of my house to do this and this and this. Nobody would pay any attention to it. But because I came from celebrity and fame and what and what was a peak of a career, that was intriguing to people. And to me, it wasn't that. It wasn't anything to do with that. It was just work, and it was time to make an adjustment. I think also, you know, your career was a creative career. And so in part, you were walking away not just from being famous and rich, but also from making stuff, which you had previously dedicated a a huge part of your life to. I didn't walk away from that. I applied all my creativity to my home life, to my kids, to my family. I I was the same person. I didn't change. I just um, shifted my focus. What did you miss about your um, your previous life when when you were raising your kids? Um, I'm I missed the people, and um, I missed the the very refreshing nature of doing something radically different every day. Raising kids and being a stay at home parent, especially a single stay at home single parent is there's a lot of sameness. It's a very different kind of life than being on a set with Aykroyd and Murray and Steve Martin, you know, obviously. And so I missed that kind of thing. But I found lots of joy and lots of rewards in other places. It was just all part of an adjustment. When when your kids got old enough to um, to understand your previous career... What did they What did they think about it? I mean, partly just what did, did they did they like your movies, but partly like what did they think about the fact that they had this stay at home dad, who had weirdly been a movie star when they were little tiny kids and before they were born. I don't think that was how they perceived it. Um, I don't. I can't be sure, but my. My earliest memories are of being with them in public situations where people would get all excited because they were seeing a famous person and it was me and my kids just like were like why are you so excited it's just him so they <laughs> they had a really good perspective on celebrity and fame very very early on and i actually tell this story all the time i took my son he was really young to a basketball game at Madison Square Garden and sitting in front of us was Derek Jeter, and he was sitting, actually, and this is way, way before Alex Rodriguez was going to be on the New York Yankees. He was sitting with Alex Rodriguez. I didn't know. I knew who Jeter was. I had no idea. My kid knew it all. I think he was four or something or five. And um, they had just, he, he really followed the Yankees closely, and they had just hired Chuck Knobloch or something to play second base. And so Derek Jeter turned around, recognized me, got kind of like, oh, hi, hi. And I went, hi. And my son said, have you met Chuck Knobloch yet? 
And, and <laughs> Jeter looked at him like, who is this kid? But, but that was my son. He was just comfortable around anybody. And I think the reason he was was because he just didn't buy why people were getting excited around me. Did you think about, like, what you wanted your family life to be like? I mean, there's not... Um... I mean, I don't know if you knew other single dads who were uh, who were raising kids by themselves, but did you did you have to like create a template for yourself based on you know forethought? I happen to have had a, a really really happy, wonderful childhood, and I think if you do, you try and recreate a lot of it, and if you don't, you try and not make those <laughs> mistakes. So I was trying to recreate a lot of. Um, the joy that I experienced as a kid and do it in a slightly different context because it was, you know, years later, 30 years later or whatever, and it was New York City as opposed to the suburbs of Toronto. Kind of decided to follow the adage of 90% or whatever of success is, is, is showing up or being there, and I found that to be true, that just being there was was the best thing that I could do. That's what I experienced with my mother at home all the time. And so when my kids came home, there was music and there were lights on and there were great smells coming out of the kitchen and it was just always a joyful place to be and that's what I wanted. That's what I wanted to create. Do you think that you might like to return to show business? I mean, I'm sure that um, if you wanted to go out and audition, you could either be, you know, getting parts in movies or um, playing someone's uh, someone's dad on a sitcom pilot if you wanted to. And, and your kids are now grown-ups. I've never had a plan. I've never ever thought, had any forethought about anything I've ever done. I've just kind of looked at opportunities, said no to most things, and sometimes whatever was left standing was the thing that I went for, and sometimes... Something came along that was so appealing, I just jumped at it. Usually it was driven by the the people that were involved more than anything else. There are other factors now. I mean, I'm, I'm comfortable where I live. There are certain locations I'm not interested in being. Um, and and I, I'm not interested in doing anything I've done in the past. But in terms of being on camera, I have no idea. It's not something I've given any thought to at all. I mean, the only reason that I'm doing interviews is because <laughs> I let this record company talk me into releasing this album, and so now I'm doing interviews, and that's just part of the process. But the driver for that was writing a bunch of songs and being talked into recording them by friends of mine. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the comic actor Rick Moranis. I want to play another song from your new album. It's called The Seven Days of Shiva. Could you tell us a, a little bit about it before we play it? Well, the, uh, a Shiva is, uh, the, the, the word Shiva means seven, and the, a Shiva is the seven-day mourning period after someone dies. And, you know, obviously if it's a, a tragedy, it's there to comfort the mourners. But, you know, oftentimes it's some old person that has been around and you know it's just better it was going to happen and they die whatever whatever and shivas become they just become all about food and there's a reason for that you know people want to comfort people and the the easiest way to comfort somebody is to is to give them food to to share in 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 what you can you bring them your 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 bounty you bring them your food and Growing up, I used to hear my mother on the phone talking to her sisters, 
talking about sending in a meal to someone who had, whose father or mother had passed. And um, they'd be going, what do you mean we can't get a dinner? We got a lunch. And they, they would all, we always be about the food. And then when we lost my father and I was on the other side of being at a shiva and, uh, and experienced this, I, it was just this never-ending amount of catering that was just coming in <laughs> constantly. So that's why I did this song, and, and I used the familiar melody to frame it. Let's take a listen. On the first day of Shiva, the Stolberg sent in the biggest potato kugel I've ever seen. On the second day of Shiva, the Katzman's had delivered two terrines of borscht and a bigger potato kugel than the Stolberg's. On the third day of Shiva, the apple bomb sent over three steamed pastrami's, two terrines of borscht, and an even bigger potato kugel than the Stulbergs or the Katzmans. On the fourth day of Shiva, the Resnicks came and brought four pickled tongues. Three steam pastrami's, two terrines of borscht, and we had to leave their kugel in the hall. All those names were people, were families on the street on I grew up on. I, I hope on that street they're laughing. Rick, I don't have the money uh, to finance a Ghostbusters sequel. <laughs> I don't um, think anybody does. I, I'm sad. I'm sad to say I I wish I did. Um, However, I think I could probably get I could get rights to I'm looking at the IMDb Big Bully? Maybe Big Bully, yeah. That'd be easy. I was thinking Big Bully. How about crowd f- uh, funding of Ghostbusters 3? Would that be possible? Maybe we should crowdfund Big Bully 2 first as a test project. I don't think you need a crowd. I think <laughs> Um Rick Moranis, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on board. Thanks for having um, me. It, it was really great to have you on the show, and and I hope for, and I hope for all of our sakes that, um, except possibly yours, I guess we'd have to see that we get to see you performing sometime soon. Now that you've got some time on your hands. Um, well, we'll see what happens. Um, trying to talk the record company into doing a video of one of the songs, but I don't know if that'll happen or not. <laughs> Maybe crowdfunding. Maybe there's room in that crowd. Rick Moranis. His new album is called My Mother's Brisket and Other Love Songs. This is the place, is it what you expected? You should have seen all the ones I rejected. Cozy and comfy, what I humbly call home. But the truth is a man shouldn't be alone. Don't be confused, there is nothing to decide Consider it insisted, you're coming inside I want you to kiss my mezuzah Just throw all your things on the bench Blessed are you and oh yeah me too You're in the home of a man That is the living room, is it what you expected? Admittedly, the upholstery is a little bit neglected. 
cozy and comfy, that's a 60-inch plasma. The HEPA filter's noisy, but it's good for my asthma. Don't be confused, there is nothing to decide. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. It's still early in the summer. Maybe you're getting ready for a vacation and you need to bring some reading material. Or if you've already taken vacation, maybe you tore through your last book and need a new one to get started on. In either case, good news. We're all about the good stuff here at Bullseye, and we've got Carolyn Kellogg from the L.A. Times in studio to recommend a couple of the best new books worth checking out. Hi, Carolyn. How are you? Hi, Jesse. Great. How are you? I'm okay. I'm a little worried about uh, your first recommendation, The Unknowns by Gabriel Roth, a new novel set in San Francisco in 2002. It is about a, gosh, I guess that would be a second wave Silicon Valley millionaire, right? I think that's first wave because it was before the first crash. Okay. Well, anyway, tell me about the book. <laughs> I think I think, I think think the fact that there are many waves of Silicon Valley millionaires speaks to the way that a book that is set in 2002 can be totally contemporary. And in some ways, this is a timeless book because it's about a geek who falls in love and whose brain often betrays him when he's trying to to do the right thing. What do you mean by that? The best part about the book is that he's this got this internal narrative that is kind of running all the time. So while his face is doing one thing and his mouth is doing something else, his brain is sort of running a mile a minute. Did you enjoy spending time with this obsessive internal monologue? I did. I did. He's great. That's, That's such a great thing about a book is that you can enter somebody else's mind space. And the mind space that Gabriel Roth creates, and this is his first book, is really, really interesting and fun. What what happens to this guy? Well, in the first couple pages, he picks up the wrong girl at a party and convinces her in a few short sentences to go do ecstasy with him. <laughs> and then they have sex and his brain finally turns off. And then after that happens, he tries to get together with one of her, her friends. Well, it sounds... And that's the falling in love. <laughs> Let's talk about Hot House, the art of survival and the survival of art at America's most celebrated publishing house, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Um, I, I'm glad that this is your second time by here. You're already recommending books about books. <laughs> you know, and I sort of hate books about books, so I'm kind of embarrassed. But I think that for people who like literature, uh, this is a great gossipy dishy story of American publishing in the 20th century. And it's not the slick guys in suits in the corporations like it is now, but it was idiosyncratic and sometimes sexist and sometimes uh, over the top and kind of interesting. What is a cool piece of uh, juicy gossip that you can tell us about a Tom Wolfe or a Flann O'Connor or a Jonathan Franzen or, or one of these other FSG writers? Well, there were three guys who the house is named for, Roger Strauss, Robert Giroux, and John Farrar. And Strauss is the biggest character in, in the whole thing. And his relationship with these various authors is really interesting and is really the thing that makes the book drive forward. And his wife once called the workplace a sexual sewer. <laughs> Carolyn Kellogg writes about books for the LA Times. Carolyn, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. The title of comedian Doug Benson's podcast says it all. 
Doug loves movies. This month, Doug put out a very funny stand-up comedy album, and it's no surprise he got into talking about cinema, specifically the sequel to Taken. The original was a movie where Liam Neeson had to rescue his kidnapped daughter. So Taken 2 had an opportunity, and they blew it. Liam Neeson's on the phone with his daughter again. I don't know why she doesn't just let his calls go to voicemail and start running. Dad, ah! But she takes the call, and he says, your mother's about to be taken. And then when he has the perfect opportunity to say taken too, he says, and they'll probably come for you as well. How hard is it for him to just say, you'll probably be taken too? It could be the first scene of the movie, and as soon as he says it, it could come up on the screen in big letters, boom, taken too. And then we'd have taken movies for the rest of our lives. Instead, it's done at two. Two and out. They could do taken three, taken yet again. Taken four, the final conflict. Taken five, a new beginning. Taken six, fast six. Taken seven, all good takens go to heaven. Taken eight men out. Taken nine. Nine what? Nine months. That's weird. Like, I will kidnap your baby that's in your womb. I will take your baby out of you and you won't even know. And then I will put it in my own stomach and give, give birth to it and raise it as my own. Doug Benson, his new stand-up comedy album is called Gateway Doug. After a break, Booker T. Jones will talk about his long career in music and why it is definitely not over. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hi, everybody. I'm Justin McElroy. I'm Dr. Sidney McElroy. Oh, look at you, doctor. You told me to say it that way. We have a medical history show called Sawbones right here on Maximum Fun where we talk about all the dumb, hurtful, damaging ways that we've tried to fix people over the years. Have you ever tried to put mercury on a syphilis shanker? Or maybe you tried to drill a hole in your head because you heard it would reduce your blood brain volume? That was dumb. But if you want to know exactly why and know about all the other people that try to do the same dumb thing you did, you can listen to our show every Friday right here on MaximumFun.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Booker T. Jones was 17 years old, not quite out of high school, and in a session backing a rockabilly star when he cut this record. That's Green Onions. It went number one R&B and number three pop, became one of the great instrumental hits of all time, and launched Booker T. Jones' career. Not to mention the career of his multiracial band, the MGs. He and his band backed almost every great hit on the greatest soul label of all time, Stax. And he also played with and produced non-Stax stars like Carlos Santana, Neil Young, and Willie Nelson. His newest record also features some bold-faced names. But here's a track Jones recorded with his son, Ted. 
It's called Father Son Blues. Booker T. Jones, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Oh, thank you, Jesse. So that song is a little bit more um, 1958 than it is 1968. It sounds like something that you might have listened to um, when you were 15 or 16 years old. Yeah, it's um, similar to music that I was playing down on Beale Street when I first got my jobs as a bass player. I played bass on the song. Uh, in Memphis, yeah. When did, what, what was your first professional gig? My first professional gig was actually playing piano for a tea uh, in Memphis, uh, not not far from my church, for just uh, a, a local gathering, just a little while. How old were you? Oh, maybe I was uh, 12 years old, I think. What did your parents think about you playing out when you were a teenager? Hmm. They were pretty protective. They um, the first times, you know, my dad would come and sit outside and wait. They were they were supportive, um, but they um, they were a little cautious about it. I, I want to play a, a little bit of what I think was one of the first records that you played on for Stax, uh, which is which is Carla Thomas and Rufus Thomas's "Cause I Love You." That's correct. That was the first time. That was the first record I played on for Stax. played on that record. What were you playing on that record? I was playing baritone sax. It's the first thing you hear on the record. Uh, and I don't know, I think I must have been in 10th grade, so I was probably 14, maybe 15, something like that. How old were the uh, How old were the other guys in the band? They were older, uh, four or five years older. Uh, let's see, yeah, in some cases maybe uh, 10 years older than myself. What, what was that like for you? Oh, I was used to that. That's that's those. I played with older people. That's how I got my jobs at the cl- in the clubs. I was always the youngest one in the band. Did you ever think of doing something else? I mean, to be to be that talented at, at that age. Was there ever a point where you thought to yourself, ah, I don't want to just want to be Mr. Music Guy? Well, originally I thought I'd be uh, a doctor, and I just was doing the music because I loved it so much, and I had never thought of music as a, as a, as a profession. But I didn't do that well in, uh, in chemistry uh, in, in high school, and so I started to change directions then. 
we played uh, we played in the introduction Green Onions, which was your first huge hit under your own name. Yeah. When you recorded it, did you record it because you went into the studio to record your own record, or was it really as happenstantial as the as the legend goes? I recorded it because, for some reason, the the original session artist person didn't complete his session, and we had a complete afternoon open and vacant in the studio, so we were making use of the time. That's the reason I recorded the song. <laughs> was it something that you had just had in your back pocket? Well, it was something that I had played in clubs, and the something I'm talking about is this slow blues named Behave Yourself that I had played in clubs, uh, out on you know in, around the clubs in Memphis with my own little solo band, and uh, people liked it, you know, and uh, we recorded it, and uh, Jim Stewart liked it and thought that we needed something for the B side, so it was just making use of the time there in the studio rather than going home. What was it like for you to hear? A record that you, that you didn't just play on that was your record uh, like on the radio and and see it actually become a hit well it was amazing before it became a hit just to hear it on the on the radio just to be driving down the street in my car and hear my song come on the first time you know it just kind of blew me over <laughs> it still does actually uh, the Aces were playing uh, Salt Lake City, and they played Green Onions last night, and I got the same feeling as I did when I was a kid. I was so surprised to hear it, and it sounded great in that stadium. <laughs> it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Booker T. Jones, is an iconic organist and the band leader of the MGs. They were the in-house band at Stax Records during some of the label's best years in the 1960s. Do you have a favorite record that you played on that was someone else's record in those in those early 1960s years of Stax? There were, I have so many favorites. I played on Try, Try a Little Tenderness. I played the piano on that. Otis Redding's Try a Little Tenderness. Oh, she may be weary. Them young girls, they do get weary. Wearing that same. Try a Little Tenderness is um, a, a pretty amazing song. Um, and it's also a pretty perfect marriage of um, Otis Redding's particular talent and, you know, a, a style of performance and, and a, you know, and a record. Mm-hmm. When did you first hear that song? Um, you know, what, what was it like going into the studio on it? Well, I helped develop the song the way they, the way it was recorded. Um, I guess it was uh, Otis, Otis's manager's idea, um, and we just uh, developed it from from scratch, from the inception, as though it were a new song. Uh, ideas came from uh, Al Jackson and Steve Cropper and Otis, and uh, we developed it right there on the spot. Was the idea for it to become the kind of uh, the kind of showstopper that uh, that it became? I mean, was was it always a was it always going to be the the big curtain dropper? Yeah, it it, de- it developed into that. We never we never um, 
thought it would be a showstopper from the beginning. The, our, our ideas always started as just little seeds, and uh, and they they developed into these 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 big uh, arrangements. I want to ask you about that house style of stacks. Um, it was a style that, you know, you and the MGs really helped um, helped codify. Uh, maybe you could describe what you think the, the sax sound was. It was a simple sound, um, not complicated at all, accessible, and, and uh, I'll use the word funky, you know, music that was easy to feel, music that had a leaning towards... Uh, Blues and blues, blues chords, uh, just a slight bit of jazz, and maybe uh, a slight bit of rock. But uh, the themes uh, were always accessible, easy to understand, and uh, music that was just easy to get into. I want to play another Booker T and the MGs song. This is from uh, your last record from 1971, mm-hmm. um, and it's called. Melting pot. Okay. Booker T and the MGs had for a long time really been a band that, you know, as a recording act focused on singles. Mm-hmm. And and by 1971, you know, there were there were soul artists making album music. And mm-hmm. the sound of that record is so much broader and you know, I don't I don't want to say looser because it's still really tight. But, you know, it's it's not a two-minute, 30-second song. Mm-hmm. It doesn't feel like a two-minute and 30-second song. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me how it was different to be making music in, in 1971 versus 1962. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, by 71, there were some doors that had been opened up as far as what you could release. Uh, Isaac Hayes had made uh, songs that were six and some as many as 15 minutes long. Bob Dylan had done it. Bob Dylan had made like a Rolling Stone, and that was that was longer. Uh, our original rule was to make the songs two minutes and fifteen seconds, or two minutes and thirty seconds at the most. But by that time, I had also left Memphis in 1968. I had moved to California, and I had felt that our sound uh, was had gotten stale. I didn't want to make a record that sounded like the like the older records, so. In every area, uh, I was looking for a way to um, let loose and to, uh, to be different. Why did you move to California? Many reasons. Um, by, by the end of 1968, uh, Stax had realized that they could make 
more money by making albums. And they realized that they could uh, reach more people by becoming uh, a more corporate uh, company. I guess I was a, a brash young man, and uh, I, 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 uh, I had my own ideas about uh, what I wanted to do with, with my craft. And uh, I had been out to Monterey. We had played the Monterey Pop Festival and uh, just decided to move on. When you played Monterey Pop, was it your first exposure to the kind of cultural revolution that was happening in the late 1960s? Yes, it was. What did you see? What was it like? Something that was almost un-American. Or un- I saw uh, restaurants giving food away for free, people sharing hotels. and The hippie, the hippie culture uh, embracing uh, Otis Redding and uh, Booker T and the MGs. And I started to talk to people in groups like... Uh, Jefferson Airplane uh, backstage, and uh, I, I just became aware of a, of a new uh, a new culture. What did you think of it? Well, I thought it was uh, uh, the the beginning of something new for for the race, uh, for the human race. This is the love crowd, right? We all love each other, don't we? Am I right? Let me hear you say yeah. You produced one of my favorite albums of all time, um, which is uh, Bill Withers' first album, Just As I Am, from 1971. Mm, Thank you. And I want to play the opening track from that album called Harlem. How did you end up working on that project? A mutual friend, or mutual business association associate, Clarence Avant, uh, uh, suggested to Bill that he come out to my ranch and sing some of his songs for me. I had a ranch at the time. I bought Atlanta Turner's old ranch out on Winding Way in Malibu. And so Bill did come out. He came out with a big, thick notebook. And uh, once he sat in my living room with his guitar, uh, you know, we were, we clicked. What did he sing for you? He sang Ain't No Sunshine. It was the first song he sang for me and <laughs> Grandma's Hands and most of the ones that appeared on that first album. And it's amazing to think of somebody sort of showing up at your house, yeah. sitting down with a guitar and, yeah. you know, singing. Those are, you know, a couple of the great popular songs of the last 50 years. Yeah, yeah, I thought so, too. I thought so, too. Uh, <laughs> he just pulled his car up and walked in the door and talked a little bit. And what do you think of this? <laughs> what was your job as the producer on that record? I mean, w- what did you think you had to do? Producer's job is to uh, basically make it happen. Um, you know, according to the producer's position, some you have to go get the money, you get the musicians, you know, you, 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 you build up anticipation at a record company and you, um, in some cases, in my case, I was the arranger. I arranged the strings and the horns. You come up with a concept, if there isn't already a concept, uh, for the sound and, uh, you know, just basically uh, basically a coach, you know. Uh, uh, I had to coach Bill. You know, Bill didn't, Bill didn't consider himself uh, 
uh, much of a singer at the time. I, I don't know exactly. I think he thought of himself as a carpenter, and he was doing that because he loved it. Uh, but I, I, I encouraged him to sing the songs and uh, that type of thing. You know, I, I we had Bill Withers on the show a couple of years ago. Oh, yeah. What did he say? <laughs> he said all kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I gather from having spoken with him that um, he's he's happy to be out of the music industry. What What I wonder is... The two of you are uh, not wildly dissimilar in terms of age and, and level of success. And you have been working steadily for mm-hmm. now 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. So what what do you think is the difference? I mean, what do you think draws you back in at a time when I'm I'm quite sure you could retire if you chose to? Well, I had lunch with him, and he was very encouraging. He was congratulating me on having done music all this time. He said he was proud of me uh, for, uh, you know, dedicating myself to music, and he thought that was great. Uh, So I thanked him for that. You know, I I prepared myself uh, at an early age to do music, and it's just just in my blood. So, you know, you've done pretty much all of the things there are to do in the music industry. I mean— uh, besides all of the stuff that we've talked about, you like, you know, you produced a quintuple platinum Willie Nelson record. Um, you know, there's there's not a lot of boxes left to check off. So, what seems really important to you in terms of making music? Well, you know, Jesse, to be totally honest with you, that was quite a statement you just made that I've that I've checked off all the boxes. And tell you the truth, my attitude is that I'm just starting to check off the boxes <laughs> as I. Music is so vast, you know, and I, I feel like I've just touched the, uh, scratched the surface in a lot of areas. Uh, I trained myself to do classical music, and I still have a lot of ideas, and I have such good connections in the business with so many incredibly gifted musicians that I talk to and work with. Um, you know, I just, I just think there's a lot of possibilities for me now. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time to be on the show. Um, it was really a pleasure to talk to you. Well, well thank you for talking to me, Jesse. Appreciate it. Booker T. Jones' new album is called Sound the Alarm. It's in stores now, and he's doing a lot of tour dates. You can find more information about that at bookert.com. We like to close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's the outshot. There are a lot of hip-hop records about bravado, fewer about fear. The best record I've listened to this year is by Chicago's Chance the Rapper. It's a free mixtape called Acid Rap. I love the whole thing, but there's one song called Paranoia that shakes me every time I hear it some context. In most cities, the violence that rose up around the crack epidemic of the 1980s and 90s has mostly subsided. Gentrification has set in in a lot of those places. I know the neighborhood I grew up in, the Mission in San Francisco, is basically unrecognizable to me when I go home to visit my mom. All the dealers on the corners have been replaced by boutiques. Things are different in Chicago, or parts of Chicago anyway. Some bits of town have improved a lot. They're full of comfortable people and fancy coffee. 
But wide swaths of the town are as bad as ever, sometimes worse. And it can feel like the outside doesn't even care to bother looking in. That's where this song comes from. So here's the question to start. Can chance change anything about that? Can anyone? Move to the neighborhood. I bet they don't stay for good. Watch. Somebody will steal daddy's rollie. We call it the neighborhood. Watch. Pray for a safer hood. When my paper good. Watch. Captain Saberhood. Hood savior. Baby boy. Still getting ID for swishers. Mama still watch my clothes. Still with the same money militia. Mama still watch my pros. Trapped in the middle of the map with a little bitty rock and a little bit of rap. That with a little every knack and a little DD smack and like a little really jack. Sun in my eyes and my gun on my hip. Paranoia on my mind, got my mind on the fritz. But a lot of niggas look at dying, so my nine with this dish. I've been riding around with my blood on my lips. With the sun in my eyes and my gun on my hip. Paranoia. Beat feels like it's one note off, unresolved. It never settles. You can't slip into the song. You have to open your ears to it. It's like Brecht or something. Here comes the real question. Does anyone even want to change anything about this situation? Do they even bother to see the pain? They murking kids. They murder kids here. Why you think they don't talk about it? They deserted us here. Where the fuck is Matt Lauer at? Somebody get Katie Couric in here. Probably scared of all the refugees. Look like we have a hurricane here. Are we shooting whether it's dark or not? I mean, the days is pretty dark a lot. Down here, it's easier to find a gun than it is to find a parking spot. No love for the opposition, specifically a cop position, because they've never been in opposition, getting violations from the nation, correlating you I remember the junkie who broke into my house and held a knife to my mom. I remember the cold looks on the street and gunshots outside the window. I remember sitting in bed at night and wondering whether the sound I heard was fireworks or something else. When you're in that situation... You have to be tough and brave, and you can't show your fear. I just stood up straight and pretended like those things didn't terrify me. Once I got jumped in, didn't even tell my parents. I know you scared. You should ask us if we scared too. I know you scared. The truth is, I was lucky. I was white. I was big. I had a scholarship to a private school. Others aren't. If you was there, and we just knew you cared too. It just got warm out. I've been warm out. I hope that it's storm in the morning. I hope that it's pouring out. I hate crowded beaches. I hate the sound of fireworks. And I find what's worse between knowing it's over and dying first. Because... Everybody dies in the summer When they say goodbyes, tell them while it's spring I heard everybody's dying in the summer So pray to God for a little more spring Really, Chance isn't even asking for changes. He's asking for a connection. He's asking not to be invisible. He's asking for someone to acknowledge that he and his friends and his family and the folks in his neighborhood are people who matter and feel. He wants to be heard when he says that he's afraid. And that's a pretty brave thing to say. That's my outshot. I know you scared. You should ask us if we scared too. If you was there and 
we just knew you cared too. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Julia Smith. Our senior producer is Nick White. Our intern is Henry Malofsky. Thanks this week to Michael Urdley at Tanglewood Studios in Reno and to NPR New York for engineering help. Interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Bullseye's theme music is provided by The Go Team. Our thanks to them and their label, Memphis Industries Records. That's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.